All right, grab your Bibles. It's time for a Bible study, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. For the Christmas season, we call it Advent, which is a word that just means arrival, the Lord's appearance in Bethlehem. We've been studying Matthew's Gospel, chapters 1 and 2. And for this morning, the last but not least, Luke chapter 2, we'll pick up at verse 21 for another uh, familiar Christmas story. Meanwhile, we'll ask the Lord for his blessing and prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who's with us. We do pray that you would touch our hearts and help us to hear what your Spirit is saying. You've brought us all here for a reason. Nothing happens by chance, and you are sovereign, and you are ordaining our footsteps. And so you have something encouraging for each one of us. Help us to hear it and to put it into practice so we can be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you think of the Christmas story, a familiar cast of characters will come to mind, no doubt. Of course, there's Joseph, the adoptive father, the husband to Mary, a good and obedient man, a man of few words. We don't hear him say anything in the scriptures. We just see him constantly obeying. Then there's Mary, Willful and trusting servant of the Lord. He just, uh, uh, Mary conceives, of course, by the Holy Spirit and bears the Savior uh, of the world. Then there's Mary's relative, Elizabeth. She's front and center. Uh, miraculous conception of her own. She was barren and older and she couldn't have kids. And then she conceives and uh, it's going to be John the Baptist. And she's a big help to Mary and even Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, we know about. Uh, Zechariah has this angelic vision in the temple, and, and then he busts out in this beautiful song. It's like a psalm of praise to God. And th then, of course, their son, John the Baptist, he's born, and we hear about his role to be a forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ to announce his mission as Savior of the world. Then there's the wise men, a.k.a. the Magi. We talked about them last week from the east, bringing their gifts and worshiping the Lord. There's a mysterious star that's a character in its own right. We had King Herod. King Herod's famous jealousy and his murderous edict that the death of all boys in Bethlehem two years or younger would happen under his watch. We've got the shepherds, of course, right? The shepherds who see this angelic host singing Alleluia and praising God. And, but there's always a couple of names who are in the Christmas story who are forgotten about. Do you know who we forgot about? Who are they? You're proving my point. <laughs> Anna and Simeon. Anna and Simeon. And there is a reason that I think why they're kind of obscure at Christmas time. And this morning, we're going to see their part in Christmas. Let's begin with the story at verse 21. You know, uh, sometimes it's not the packages right in front of the tree, but you have to dig a little deeper and it's behind the tree that often holds the most exciting and most precious gift of all. And I think it might be 
true in this case as well, where we get to behind the tree and see this couple and Mary and Joseph as well. There's a lot to learn. In fact, I've divided up the text for you note takers in three uh, lessons. The key to godly parenting, we see the key to righteous living and the key to wisdom for mourning or grieving in tough times. All right, the first part, verses 21 through 24. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name that the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Let's pause there. Before we meet the two unassuming characters uh, who, the, who the Bible gives much honor to, before we meet them, we're going to see what brings Jesus and his parents to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, first off, I think one of the reasons why we're not real familiar with the story of Anna and Simeon. In fact, somebody asked me, what are we going to talk about today, Pastor Ross? And I said, Anna and Simeon, blank look on his face. Like, what do they have to do with Christmas? Well, for one thing, Jesus is eight days old, and the ceremony that follows when in the story, Jesus is still an infant of only 40 days old. And so it's truly still the Christmas story. But what I think where the disconnect is, is it's prefaced by three ceremonies from the Old Testament that we know nothing about and we don't really connect with. Because you're talking about circumcision, you're talking about a baby consecration, which is like a baby dedication, and then a ceremony of purification for the mom who has become ceremonially unclean. This is why we just get stumbled right there and just go, well, whatever that means, and then we, get, we move on. But you know what? Stumble no more, because we're going to find out what exactly that all means. And in, on our way there, we're going to be inspired about what makes uh, good parents. What does, it make, what does it mean to be a good and godly parent or grandparent? So Joseph and Mary are following the scripture's commands here. And so our first point, godly parents, what we can learn from them. Let me say first that good parents do their best, of course, to do everything to, to prepare and to provide everything the baby will need. Now, you know, from bibs to booties to bottles to blankies to binkies and other words that start with B <laughs> or don't. Uh, and just like, you know, Pastor Adam and Katie, now they have to start preparing for the little one on, their, on its way. Now, if you didn't know that, I got the chance to tell you. So <laughs> praise the Lord, because they announced it last week. Now, you know, when we think of Providing for babies, we think of a safe and nurturing and enriched environment, right? Solid education. I don't know what you think of getting them involved in sports and music and socialization of all sorts. Now, if uh, here's a picture of 
some adorable preschoolers. If you've got uh, $40,000 to spare in New York City, you can enroll your preschoolers in uh, this school where they, they're not interested in the sandbox. They will teach your child Latin and French and how to play the violin and also how to cook. So when you come home from a long day at work, that toddler can be busy preparing you some French cuisine. Now, thank you for the picture there. Ironically, what's most important and least expensive, I might add, is often what's oftentimes neglected, and that which we see in Mary and Joseph The most important things parents do for their children are spiritual. The most important things parents do for their children are spiritual. Praying for them and with them. Reading the Bible. As the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6, these commandments I give today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Talking to them, taking them to worship, to God's house as we call it. Helping them to have saving faith. And if I were to adapt Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 16, where he says, and I'll adapt it for our context, what would it matter if your child grows up and gains the whole world, but doesn't make it to heaven. This is what we're talking about. The things that make you a good parent are spiritual in nature because what's the most important thing is a connection to God and tools that will help you walk with him and end up in a place of eternal life. Now, um, they obey, Joseph and Mary obey the word of God, and right here from the jump, uh, according to the word of God, in Genesis chapter 17, all uh, Jewish males were to be circumcised on the eighth day, and so in accordance to the scriptures, they have Jesus circumcised. Now, along with the promise of the miracle child of Isaac, that very first miracle that was told to Abraham and Sarah, who couldn't have children, not only couldn't Sarah have children, but she was 90 years old when the promise came. He was 99, and he couldn't have children either because he was 99. And so there was a promise, and then before the miracle child was born, before... The right of circumcision was commanded in a serious way. And the Lord said, if somebody is born and not circumcised, they have no part with me. Now, he did this because really it is the Christmas message. Now, here, you wouldn't think of it that way, but it is. Here's the message of circumcision. Salvation doesn't come through human effort, but through the miraculous intervention of God who gives life to the dead. So in other words, the mark is placed accordingly. The birth that gets you out of hell, the birth that gets you into heaven, is not the birth from mommy and daddy. It's the birth from God 
And so what the Bible says is human beings born of other human beings have no hope of going to heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I'll repeat it. Human beings who are simply born of other human beings have no hope of going to heaven. It's only through the supernatural spirit birth given by the Holy Spirit. And that's really the whole point of circumcision. So in an amazing way, he who commands the sign will now submit to it in his own body, the God-man. And what is it saying? It's saying this simply, once again, it wasn't through natural means that Jesus arrived on the scene. That's perfect. And so mom and dad obey, and Jesus drops a little blood for the very first time. It won't be the last time he bleeds. So according to the scriptures, day eight happens, thanks to mom and dad, what? Their obedience. They're following God's plan for raising kids. They're not just making it up as they go. So Jesus becomes a member of the Jewish community at day eight, and they name him, that was the custom in the day, as on the eighth day you got your Jewish name as well. And once again, Mary and Joseph obey the voice of God through the angel that said, you shall name him Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. It's a beautiful name. It, of course, has been twisted and perverted and blasphemed that even when you say Jesus in talking, you almost feel like, did I say something wrong because it's so abused? And the word of God, the name of God, it's a commandment. Do not mess with the name. Jesus, 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 the old song goes. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. Like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let all heaven and earth proclaim kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. It means God saves. That says it all. God saves. So in your verse there, 23 through to 25, five weeks later, they uh, obey again the word of the Lord. And there are two separate and important ceremonies. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple for two things. One, a baby dedication in our terms from Exodus chapter 13 and verse 2, and also a purification ceremony found in Leviticus chapter 12. Let's talk about the baby dedication. It says in your text that they brought him to consecrate him. All that means is to separate, just to give him over to the Lord. And we can understand what that, the word actually is agios, where we get the word holy. It's the same word, to separate unto God. So every firstborn Jewish male was presented and dedicated, according to Numbers 18 as well. And interesting, here's what they did. They prayed over the baby and gave him to God. And then the parents paid five shekels, called a redemption price to buy the baby back, as it were, from the Lord, because it recognized this is a child of God who should be serving God all the days in his life in the temple. But your redemption price said, okay, he's on loan to us, and we, 
we recognize that this baby belongs to you. So they paid five shekels to redeem the Redeemer who would one day grow up to redeem the world with his own blood. The next ceremony, you see, is one we don't understand, a purification ceremony. Every woman who gave birth was considered spiritually defiled, or the word that we're used to is unclean, for up to a month, 30 days or so. She didn't do anything wrong. Spiritual defilement in the Old Testament wasn't necessarily that you did something wrong. It was that something related to to what separates God from man has happened, something that can be ultimately traced back to the fall. And so she becomes uh, spiritually unclean because she gives birth to a sinner, one of Adam's boys, one of Eve's girls was born. Oh, you remember them. They're the ones who said, God, we don't want anything to do with you. We like the devil better than you. And so even though you said, hey, the day you take a piece of that fruit and eat it, you will die. You'll be permanently and eternally disconnected from me. But the devil took dominion really over them. And they fell. And they have kids who are sinners, born that way before they did a thing. That's why an offering needs to be made. And a shout out here to what's called original sin. Before the kid does a thing, a blood offering is necessary under the law to really to uh, to forgive and to pardon the guilt that he has uh, been transferred to from Adam and from Eve, his earthly lineage there. And so Joseph and Mary present a pair of doves, which the law said you could bring a pair of doves if you don't have enough money for a lamb, the magi have not arrived. Had they arrived already, they would have brought a lamb because they would have been able to afford gold. Little gold will buy a flock of lambs. And so uh, they only had the doves and they brought the doves. So the lamb really offered, absorbed the sin and the guilt and death sentence to symbolize the release of the baby from the consequence of sin and even the mom as well. Well, you're thinking, or you should be thinking, well, Jesus wasn't a sinner. So what's up with that? Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, the Lord was tempted in every way, just like us, and yet without sin. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, Peter says, He committed no sin and no wrong word ever came out of his mouth. 1 Peter 1.19 says that Jesus was a lamb without blemish. You see, in the Old Testament, you couldn't bring a lamb to put your sins on, to die for you, to make you right with God, if there was something faulty or defective with your sacrifice. So that was a picture of Jesus and a funny thing is when Jesus is standing before Pilate, three times he checks out the Lamb of God, and three times he says, there's nothing wrong with him. Three times, there's nothing wrong with him. I find no fault with him. Same word as blemish. The Lamb of God, he was sinless. I love in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, in verse 46, where the Pharisees are giving Jesus a hard time, And Jesus says, which one of you 
can prove me guilty of one sin. Jesus' perfection, morally, is really uh, an unrecognized miracle. To be around somebody who's just perfect for three years, you're just around a guy who's just perfect comments, perfect thoughts, perfect gestures, perfect timing, everything about him, flawless. Just what a beautiful thought. And so he who knew no sin but became sin. You see, he he started off sinless, but he's not going to stay that way. Not because of him but because of you and because of me. He had to bear our sins. He was the sin bearer. Even at his baptism, he's heard the father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love and I'm well pleased because he's not being baptized for his own sins. He's identifying with us to be able to be heaped upon our sins. In fact, Isaiah 53 and verse 8 says, The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. So there you have it. The God-man is born and he's destined. I love what one writer said, Philip Ryken, The association between Jesus and the need for cleansing was an early clue that one day he would bear the sins of the world in his own body. So Joseph and Mary are godly parents. They're following five times, it says in the scriptures, the law of the Lord. And you, you see Joseph and Mary obeying. And so did we expect anything else of these two? We've already met them. We knew they would raise Jesus the way that God wanted. And, you know, that's exactly what they did to bring up Jesus in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And they start from infancy. I really like what it says. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Listen, not in spite of how he was raised, but in keeping with how he was raised. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, are you teaching the little ones to love you and love your Jesus? To pray through hard times, to love and to forgive, to trust the Lord, to be other-centered, to be patient, kind, and loving, to read their Bible, to apply it, to tell others about Jesus, to resist temptation, to do the right thing, to repent when we sin, to go to church, to be in consistent fellowship. That's what they were doing. One thing before we move on to Simeon. Listen how awesome this is. The Son of God did without a lot of things when he came to this world. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He was born in a barn, a stable. His parents didn't have very much money. There weren't any connections this way. But there's one thing that God said, my son shall not do without There's one ingredient that God said is indispensable. He must have it. I cannot spare it. Godly parents. He gave him a stepfather and a mother who feared the Lord. If you were given that blessing, you have been blessed more than you will ever realize. You got What God gave Jesus, God the Son. 
So moving on, we're going to now meet Simeon, verse 25 to 33. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. The Jewish word Messiah is anointed one. Christ is the Greek, same thing. Moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for Jesus what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother, and I just want to say that in the, he, in the Greek, it says Joseph and the child's mother. But the NIV, wanting to just kind of for smooth reading, has changed it. And I think they should have left it for obvious reasons. It's Joseph and the child's mother, more technically, marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, this is important, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So we've seen the lesson in godly parenting and now a lesson in righteous living. We all want to be blessed and live in a right way. So what does that mean? Well, we're going to take a look at that now. First, we find out that this man is righteous and devout. Now, righteous is a term we've talked about before. It's not a term we really connect with. In fact, it has a negative connotation. If you said, she's so righteous, we think something negative. Righteous used to be in the 60s a, a word for cool. You know, you just say righteous. But you know what? What does righteous really mean? Well, it really means a goodness that comes out of right relationship with God. That's the best definition for it. We know it doesn't mean a good person because the Bible already tells us in Romans chapter 3 there's no such thing as a good person. Inherently in all humans, the Bible describes us all as lost and falling short of the glory of God, for all have sinned. And then in Romans 3 it says there's not one good. No, not one. So we know righteous can't mean he was a good guy. It means he was good because he was in right relationship with God, and the goodness that came from his life was a result of being in right relationship with God, having the forgiveness of Christ and the Holy Spirit in his life. And so we see that. The second word is uh, devout, and it means to be careful with your relationship with God. It means to be careful or meticulous with your walk with the Lord. So this man is right with God and he's careful with his walk. And it says of him in verse 25 that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What a, a funny way of describing it. It's another name for the coming of the Messiah. The word consolation, there's the exact word for comfort. The comfort of Israel. He's waiting for that because when the Lord would appear, 
Israel's problems would be solved. He's waiting for the comfort for a nation that has had a struggle, and a struggle they've had since the Egyptians, the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, and a lot of other ites too, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. The Assyrians and the Babylonians came in and took them all away from Israel, where they hadn't been for 2,000 years. Then there were the Greeks, and then there were the Romans, and then there were the Arabs, and still are, and then there were the Germans. They've always had a problem, but he's waiting for the comfort of Israel because the scriptures say a day is coming when the deliverer shall come from Zion, pay for their sins, and restore them. He's waiting for the comfort where Ezekiel says they will no longer be plundered by the nations. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. You know, there's a a coming finale. Not just the nations are listed against them. In the end of the world, which, by the way, didn't happen on Friday. I don't know if you noticed. You know, folks, just a little bunny trail on that. You know, Y2K came and gone. And then 2011 with Harold camping and that whole thing. And then Friday, the Mayan prophecy. Now maybe people will just look at the Bible, the word of God, and look for answers there because there you will find the answers. Amen? All right, so it's not just Israel's comfort, though. He says, a light for the Gentiles, so the rest of the world is included. So in short, here's what he's saying. The appearance of Messiah means the disappearance of all problems. No more frets, no more threats, and no more debts. Amen? I made that up myself, and I I can tell by your reaction that I really did. All right, so uh, moving on. So the Holy Spirit somehow tells this guy, and we don't know how, that, hey, you're not going to die before you lay eyes on the salvation for the world, the Savior of the world. You're not going to die before you see the Christ. Well, here's how I imagine that happening. There are rumors. The Lord's been quiet for 430 years. Malachi ends the Old Testament times and there's a famine with the word of God 400 years it's like where is the Lord and nobody's speaking and then suddenly stirring and shepherds and a report and John the Baptist it says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 65 that all this about John the Baptist's miraculous birth was spread all over Judea so people know something's happening And he's probably thinking, boy, I'm too old, man. I wish I were part of the story. And somehow the Holy Spirit tells him, man, actually, you're going to see his face. You're not going to die. You're not going to miss out. You're going to see his face. What just exciting things. So, uh, you know, when you're right with God and you're careful in your relationship, you can hear what God wants you to hear. So verse 27 He gets nudged by the Holy Spirit. He's drawn. He's moved by the Spirit. He goes into the courts. And I want to say I got two things out of that. When you're right with God and careful about your relationship with him, you like to hang out where all the action is at. Worship, fellowship, teaching. He's at the right place at the right time. 
Secondly, when you're right with God and careful about your relationship with him, the spirit can move you where he wants you to be. So in verse 27, the spirit puts him and everyone else looking for God's comfort on a collision course with Jesus. Verse 28, I love it, my favorite verse in the passage. He picks up and holds God the Son to his chest. He's got a baby who the Bible says made all things by his power. You look at him, he's holding God. Simeon, don't drop the Lord. <laughs> oh, my word. Just to, what, what a blessing. What a blessing. No wonder he could say, now I can die. He's clutching the Savior of the world to his chest. It's safe. Now dismiss me, he says, that I may come to you in peace, for my eyes have seen the salvation. You know, there's a famous song. It's called Nunc Dimittis in Latin. That means now dismiss. And the word for dismiss, the euphemism the Bible uses for death there, beautiful. It means several things. One, it means to release a prisoner from being a captive. Secondly, it's used to uh, loose a ship from its mooring to, so it can set sail. It's also a word for taking down your tent and moving it somewhere else. And lastly, it's used also for loosing a beast of burden. Just beautiful concepts of what it means to die. Listen, as a Christian, as someone whose blood, Jesus' blood is applied to your account, and the only way that happens is through you accepting Christ as your Savior and Lord. So Joseph and Mary are awestruck at these words. Well, I love what one writer said. The fact that Joseph and Mary keep marveling at all these words shows the continual need for them to believe and comprehend the magnitude of the miracle of Jesus in their midst. In other words, the miraculous nature of the incarnation will continually defy their ability to grasp what's going on. Just the miracle nature. This is God, and we're caring for him. They just can't grasp it totally, and we don't blame them. So Simeon is going to prophesy, and he's going to talk to Mary. The Holy Spirit is going to say this amazing thing in verse 34. Now, this baby is destined to cause the downfall of many and at the same time destined to be the saving grace of many others. The word for rising, he says, this baby will be the cause of many rising. The word is resurrection. When Jesus says to Mary and Martha in John 11 and verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, they will never die. The word resurrection, anastasis in the Greek, is the same exact word. This child will be the cause for the resurrection of many. And then he says, and he will be the cause for the downfall of many. That word, and you would think downfall or falling, would be a common word in the Bible. This word is only used one other time in the Bible. And let me read from the passage, and you kind of figure out which word it is. The Lord speaking after he spoke a sermon, he said, So anybody 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains come down and the streams rise up and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crush. Great crush is the same word for downfall in this verse. Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, says this baby will be the cause of resurrection for many and the collapse, the crash of many. And who determines that? The Lord? Well, in the parable, it's the person building who hears the words of the Lord and he doesn't put it into practice. Therefore, his house crashes. The time of storm, the time of death comes, and there's a crash. And because of his, listen, response to God's litmus test, Jesus Christ, he has a downfall. And the way the Lord describes it, it's a great downfall because it's eternal. It's eternal life. He's not just talking about this life. The reason it's a downfall of great disaster is because it's eternal. Here's Christmas' purpose given. The ultimate destiny for every human being hinges on this one baby and how you respond to that one baby. So you're, everybody's going to bounce into Jesus. And the way you spin from that reaction, your response, you spin up in belief and repentance, you're going to be rising. If you meet Jesus and you spin down in unbelief and rejection, then you will have a downfall. But it won't be his doing because God our Savior wants all men and women to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. God is not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And then he says, P.S. Mary, it's not all going to be sweet and light. A sword is going to go through your sword too. So I don't know what it would be like to watch my dear boy be crucified. Can you imagine? Simeon says, Mary, here's how it's going to feel. It's going to feel like a sword. And the word for sword there is the long one, not the short one. A sword is going to be thrust straight through you. Brace yourself. The Holy Spirit just gives her a heads up. 33 years from now, you know, it's quite a privilege, Mary had. Come on. She is privileged among all women. Who, who gets to say, yeah, you know, God stepped through my womb to save the world, all right? But with the great privileges always come these great burdens, and that's how it is here. We only have two verses left. Let's finish up the prophetess Anna. There was also a prophetess in the temple there, Anna. Her name means grace, and she's the daughter of Phanuel and from the tribe of Asher. She's very old. She has lived with her husband seven years after and after her marriage uh, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So 
we're done. We see the key to godly parenting, the key to righteous living, and now the key to productive mourning, how to handle your losses and your grief in a, in a way that God can bless. Now, she's a prophetess, and that's saying a lot because it's a unique calling to be a prophetess in the Bible. There weren't many of them. They were mostly men. And so considering there's been a 400-year silence, this is a big deal. And maybe God chose Anna just because to get people's attention. So in the fullness of time, God starts stirring her up. You know, Anna was rising. Anna's on the up elevator. So she's a prophetess. That means she just spoke for the Lord. She had that wonderful calling and privilege of knowing and proclaiming God's will to his people. So in verse 38, she comes up and thanks God and speaks to the amazed crowd about the greatness of Jesus. So she was also a widow, and the text says that she had been there after seven years of being married. So this is just an amazing woman. Here's how I picture it. She's devastated. She's young. She's only got to be married seven years, and she went to the temple seeking the Lord comfort and to be useful and get her mind off of her own fame. And you know what? She kind of liked it there. And with the comfort that God gave her, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, where the comfort of chapter 1 and verse 2, sorry, mixed that up. Anyway, where the comfort that God our Father gives us, he gives us comfort so that in our comfort we can comfort those who are in hurting. And so she is sustained by that. She doesn't want to go anywhere. She has a lot of choices, so she kind of enters the ministry. They probably have a little room there, and there's a lot of need in a ministry. So many hands make light work. And so she says, you know what? I'm just going to stay here and serve the Lord. And uh, she's just a blessing, and she's just going about her daily business there. How was Anna viewed? Like most people, when we say Anna in the Bible, it's like, uh... Like the ultimate church lady, you know, she just was at the church. Did the affluent chief priests and Pharisees think much of her? Probably not. Did the world sit up and notice little old lady at church? No, but God Almighty had something in store for her. Think of what she could have done in her loss. She could have gotten bitter like many people do. She could have grown old into a bitter person. She could have made her life all about being self-absorbed and seeking pleasure like many widows do in the New Testament. But Anna found solace and service to the Lord and nearness to God. And she found serving God sustaining and brought her peace and meaning and contentment. So she fills her loss with the service to God. She soothes her pain with prayer. She occupies her time fasting and ministering to other people. You know, when you fast, she's always fasting and praying. Generally speaking, biblical fasting is for other people. You're involved. You can fast for yourself. But generally speaking, it's to loose the chains of somebody else you love and care about. This is a woman who just is consumed with God's work and she's just happy and it all pays off for her. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 20, it says, I honor those who honor me. Now, can you imagine 
She's in the story. She made it in the gospel. This little old lady, nobody even had the time of day for. Wherever the gospel was preached, 2,000 years, it's gone to every nation, tribe, and tongue and language. When you look in heaven, you see all of these people. It says no one can count a multitude of people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. You cannot count the billions and billions and billions of people, and they all know Anna. Every last one of them know her. She is famous. Where it really matters in the scriptures which abide forever. And once she's just some little old lady lost her husband and decided, you know what, God, I'm just going to give you my life. I'm going to serve you and be a blessing to others. And the Lord says, come on over here. Draws her over because you see the drawing of the Lord. And he wants to entangle her in the eternalness of what was happening there. When you get entangled with God, it's a forever thing. And the honor and the joy and the glory, all of that is hers. And nobody can take that away from her. Um, there's a, a, a widow among us that reminds me of this story. I was sitting by her husband's side when she became a widow and he died. Uh, the day before in the ICU, I asked him, would you like to receive the Lord Jesus Christ? And he interrupted me before I finished my sentence and said, could you please pray with me? I want to receive Christ. And I said, okay. <laughs> So I started to lead him in the prayer. Some of you know the story. The wife, our widow, who's been here for 10 years, interrupted my sinner's prayer and pulled on my sleeve. And I said, yeah, what? And she said, me too. I want to go to heaven. My husband is going to heaven. I need to say the prayer as well. So we all joined hands and they repeated the prayer together. And within one hour, he was with the Lord. At her funeral, at his funeral where she was, uh, several people became Christians. And they started coming here with her. The day after, she was in church. And she's been here for 10 years. She doesn't miss a service. She supports the church financially. She's always running around. She always has something in her hands to bring. She always has a grandchild in tow because mom and dad don't go to church. She's impacting her children. She's impacting her grandchildren, and she's helping the church. She gets it. She's an Anna. And one day, she's going to see the Lord face to face. It's going to be a good thing, but it's going to be a good thing the Lord said to anybody who overcomes, and whoever overcomes is those who are born again. And it says, I will acknowledge them before my Father and before the angels in heaven. And so we look forward to that honor. You don't have to be a superstar. Nobody even knew what she was doing. You don't have to spend a lot of money. The widow who gave in two copper coins got a shout out, and she's in the gospel as well. It doesn't take a lot it just takes our hearts and to yield to the Spirit. That's what Christmas is all about. I've got three reflections here. 
Number one, every parent and grandparent wants to do a good job with the ones entrusted to their care. So instead of, you know, kind of being tempted to, you know, put more under the tree, maybe we just need to rev up our own walk with the Lord so we could provide a godly example to help them love Jesus. Number two, like Simeon, everybody wants to live a blessed life, and Simeon shows us how. Live in right relationship with God, and be careful how you walk with him, and your life will be blessed and meaningful. And like Anna, everyone wants their life to count. What a nightmare to get to heaven and find out I wasted my life. We want our life to mean something. So let's imitate Anna who takes her bumps and bruises in life and her losses and pain to God. And with the comfort she receives, she becomes a comfort to others and ministers an extension of the joy and hope of Christmas. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love. And for these characters, we learned a lot from them. And we ask that these simple truths would keep us walking with you in right relationship, being careful how we live with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song.